0: Hey guys, you're with the Understanding Russia podcast. My name is Stefan Stoyanov. And I'm Alek Rostamov. And we are going to talk about Russia and its foreign policy in the next 30 minutes. This is our third episode and we encourage you to listen to our previous ones about Russia in global affairs and the US-Russia relations. And uh, today's episode is going to be dedicated to perhaps Russia's most important partner uh, in the last 10 years, the People's Republic of China. Despite some historical contradictions,
1: the synchrony between Russia and China in the international arena is growing. At the same time, Beijing is the biggest economic partner for Russia, with increasing interdependencies between the two countries. How this affects Russian politics and whether China and Russia are really more than allies, as the Chinese foreign ministry believes, we will discuss with the head of the Department of the International Relations and the International Laboratory on World Order Studies, And the New Regionalism, as well as the Scientific Director of the Institute of China and Modern Asia of Russian Academy of Sciences, Professor Alexander Lukin. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation.
0: Thank you for inviting me. So, Professor Lukin, before we start our talk about the contemporary situation, Uh, let's go back several decades or even perhaps several centuries ago. Uh, As already Alec mentioned, Historically, Russia and China have had a few problems between them, uh, including being on the brink of war in the 1960s and the 1970s. So how do Beijing and Moscow assess their shared historical past? And uh, how much does this influence current
2: politics? Well, Russia and China has uh, about 400, a little bit more than 400 years of uh, relations. Uh, they began in the, uh, I would say, um, begi- beginning of the uh, 17th century, but they were like sporadic contacts. And then in the 17th century, there were first clashes uh, at the border. Uh, it, because the two empires at that time, it was the Qing Empire, which was not exactly Chinese, but it was uh, a Manchurian China under the rule of Manchur, Manchurian dynasty. Manchurian was a tribe that conquered China in sixteen uh, forty-four. So the relations be began at Ming dynasty, but. Uh, uh, a Bit earlier, but uh, which was the previous dynasty, a Chinese dynasty, and then the Manchurian dynasty from 1644. In the end of the se- 17th century, there were first cla- border clashes, I would say. Well, it's not, the, there was no border as such, but because the two empires um, met each other, uh, there were some clashes about territory. Uh, And at that time, China had a stronger uh, hand because Russia at that time had no, uh, had no a lot of uh, military people near, near Chinese or near Tsing Empire's territory. Then there was a kind of peaceful time until the mid, mid 19th century. Uh, There was some trade going on. And the Russian Orthodox mission was working in China from 1715. Uh, And uh, in the middle of the 19th century, uh, Russia, uh, we can say, joined other imperialist countries or Western countries and um, in its attempt to I would say, prey on the weakness of China's state. And at that time, uh, some territory, uh, that I would say the territory that uh, uh, Russia lost earlier in the end of the 17th century was regained uh, uh, at that time uh, during the Beijing Treaty, so called. Uh, there were several treaties after the uh, opium war, uh, and one of them was a treaty between Russia and China, and Russia got, uh, some territory in the Far East, which Qing Empire claimed that it was its territory. Well, there's a discussion about that, but anyway, uh, now it's the territory of Russia. Uh, so, Uh, Coming to, to, uh, well, when we talk about today, this uh, very part of bilateral relations uh, is called uh, by China to be a time of uh, unequal treaties, not only with Russia, but with other Western states, and um, Chinese official historiography or historians sharply criticize Russia's empire. Behavior at that time, um, in the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, uh, calls it one of the uh, imperialist powers that actually took advantage of China's weaknesses at that time. Uh, so um, uh, later, uh, there was a time of uh, turbulent, turbulent times, I would say in china when when after the revolution of nineteen eleven uh, several military leaders fought each other on the ter- uh, and controlled parts of the territory of China. Then the Goommingang party united most of it and finally uh in nineteen forty nine the Communist Party came to power by defeating the gomingang army and 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 the party the remnants of gumingdan had to flee to taiwan at that time saw various uh, periods of uh, the relations now with china and the soviet union because soviet union was uh, established well after the revolution in 1917 of course uh, the soviet union was formally established in uh, 1922 uh, China, uh Russian communists uh, supported uh, the Guomingdang, which is the Nationalist Party First, which was trying to unite China as a national kind of progressive movement. Uh, and but later it supported the Communist Party against the Guomingdang. It supported the Guomingdang, by the way, during the uh, because it was it controlled the Chinese official government of. Uh, Republic of the Republic of China. From 1911 until 1949, the country was called uh, the Republic of China. And uh, the Soviet Union supported its government uh, and its leader, Chiang Kai-shek, during the war between China and Japan, which began in uh, uh, 1937 and ended uh, with the defeat of Japan in 1945. Uh, Soviet Union actually gave a lot of support, including all kinds of uh, armaments and uh, also political support uh, to the Chinese government at that time, uh, which was uh, not, not not a communist government, a Gomindang government. But after 1945, it supported communist party against the Gomindang during the civil war. Again, uh, I mean. Uh, This time another party, and this this party came to power in 1949. There was a period in the 1950s of very close relations between the uh, Soviet Union and China. Later, there was a split between the two communist parties. Uh, It's interpreted in different ways in in Russia and China. Hmm. China basically says that Russia was... Trying to be dominant in the world communist movement, uh, the Soviet communists accused the Chinese communists of being le- leftist and uh, kind of too radical uh, for for pro-Marxist pro, pro theory. Uh, and uh, 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 then the period of normalization relations started uh, by the end of the Soviet Union in the second half of the 1980s. 1989, Gorbachev uh, the first and the last Soviet president. Uh, At that time he was not president yet, but the leader of the Soviet Communist Party He went to China on a historic visit in May of uh, 1989. And uh, this uh, by most uh, experts, uh, call this uh, the the end of normalization process. The relations were normalized. Since that time, I would say Soviet-Chinese and Russian-Chinese relations are on the rise. At the moment, we have very strong partnership at the uh, very um, kind of, uh, uh, I would say, thick uh, network uh over rela- uh, of relation of, of stru- uh, structure of relations you know from from top to bottom various uh, structures various committees the uh, uh, government where non government tie- uh, uh non government ties uh, ties between city levels or local uh, lo- uh, local level central level all kinds of uh uh, of ties, uh the trade is growing uh last year i think uh, the report was that it is it, it went to uh 180 uh billion us dollars which is a record figure um so so that's it thank you very much for this interesting
1: historical background And um, connecting this historical background to the modern agenda, we all know that the 70s were quite successful for the American Secretary of State, Mr. Henry Kissinger, bringing together the United States and China in order to balance the USSR. And um, other contemporary relations between Russia and China nowadays built on the same logic, but the subject that must be balanced today is the United States generally, how big is a factor of the United States in the rapprochement between
2: Beijing and Moscow? Well, the, I wouldn't compare this in the way you did. Um, Dr. Kissinger, when he was uh, the National Security Advisor, he, um, his idea of uh, was to uh, take to take advantage of uh, russian chinese split which was already quite obvious to uh, to uh, kind of uh, make this split deeper and to use china against uh, the soviet union which was considered at that time as the most uh, important or most dangerous threat by both countries by uh, by the United States in China. So, uh, but uh, I wouldn't say that it was balancing the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was not the strongest uh, actor among the three in this triangle. People were talking about triangular, triangular relations at that time. Uh, and uh, so, today, Uh, what is going on is uh, um, uh, Russia and China well first of all I would say there are two major factors or major reasons for the rapprochement. The first is a natural coming together of neighbors because in contemporary world of course neighbors especially such big neighbors uh I would say should seek um, uh, growing trade, which they do. And uh, the you know, situation of uh, kind of negative relations or bad relations between them was not natural and was not helpful to any, to each of the country. Uh, it was uh, the main reason for the split was uh, ideological. But if you put uh, aside ideology, this was quite unnatural for them. So this is one thing, uh, and I would say that uh, repression was uh, uh, had to be uh, develop, uh, had to develop anyway, regardless to the United States policy, to, the, to policy of the United States uh, after um, the Soviet Union collapsed and uh, Russia got rid of communist ideology and Chinese foreign policy was became after the beginning of reforms in uh, 1978 was also becoming less and less ideological and more and more pragmatic. But uh, there is of course a second factor uh, uh, which you mentioned, uh, that is the policy of the United States. And, uh, the West in general, uh, I would say led by a political West, let's say, uh, uh, the, ob- uh, uh, the obvious leader, which was, uh, is the United States. Uh, this policy is, uh, uh, policy of, uh, trying to maintain its world domination, it, the unipolar moment, which was, uh, uh, which, which was created, I would say, kind of uh, naturally um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So you probably remember, I don't know, maybe you are too young to remember, but you should sure certainly studied it. Uh, you know, this was when all kinds of strange theories uh, Americans came out uh, came up with uh, strange theories such as the end of history uh for example so for them history or, or for Francis fukuyama wrote that the end of, about end of history from the point of view that kind of liberalism won uh, once and for all, and there will be no ideological struggle after uh so uh But reality was very different and strong non-Western state uh, began, I would say, continued to gain uh, more power regardless of the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was, of course, an important geopolitical catastrophe, but at the same time, it was uh, not uh, the only thing. Uh, which which was going on at that time. So the growing of China, growing of India, growing of Brazil and other non-Western centers began before the collapse of the Soviet Union and continues uh, at the still continues at the moment. So, but uh, the leaders of the United States of the political co- class. Uh, Really believed uh, so much and so deeply in this idea of the end of history, or the final uh, that the final domination of the United States and its allies in the world was reached. So it's very hard for them uh, to change this, ide- this idea, and uh, uh, subsequently to change its policy. So what they do now is actually what uh, people like Kissinger and, uh, for example, some other American political thinkers like Zbigniew Drzezinski, for example, want them not to do. Uh, and they want them not to, uh, not to create uh, by their actions uh a single force or a union of non-Western powers which would control Eurasia. Because they thought it would be very dangerous for the influence of the United States in this, in, in this region, in this area. Now, Because they were geopolitical thinkers. And they understood that. Well, the current American political elite, they don't have geopolitical thinkers. They only have like ideal ideology. Or most of them are ideologists. From the ideological point of view, you should criticize and press, you know, and attack ideologically and possibly militarily bad states, which are non-Western states, or at least those of them which do not want to be obedient to uh, to the only world center. So they began this very strange, from even from some Americans or geopolitically minded Americans a policy of uh, uh, pressurizing and uh, containing uh, the, uh, China and Russia simultaneously which of course moved them closer together so my idea is that uh rapprochement was would have be uh, been going on anyway but perhaps uh, sl- uh, slower than at the moment because this year, this kind of mindless American policy actually speeds up this process quite a bit
0: you mentioned that uh China and Russia are closer now uh than before and I'm sure you know there is a new foreign minister in, in uh, Beijing and he recently had an article in the national interest If I'm not mistaken, the article is called uh, How China Sees the World. But our question is uh, how does Russia see China?
2: Well, it depends what you mean by Russia. If you mean the government, uh, uh, the Russian government uh, sees China as uh, one of the main, or maybe the main partner, especially now in this situation of uh, serious international conflict uh around Ukraine I would say. Uh uh is uh and China is a country which is friendly to Russia, which is uh trying to uh support well I would I wouldn't say support Russia but I would say it's uh by its actions it uh, it is uh, uh it, it it is try it, it, it is doing trade with Russia and uh, political relations uh, uh, without any influence of uh, pressure from the West, which is uh, in reality support uh, supporter of Russia. Uh, so if you are talking about the Russian people, uh, we have uh, some results of opinion polls and uh, the last of them is that That uh, the latest that are available say that 70 or even more percent of Russians now uh, say that China is the most friendly country uh, to Russia in the world. It's even more than say that Belarus is also a friendly country. But at the same time, there is a minority of Russians, about 10 or so percent, which are apprehensive about some China's uh, policies and uh, there are some myths about China which are spread among them ab- among this minority, for example, that China might want to get some uh, to get some territory from Russia or that it's uh, too strong uh, to be a partner and that Russia may become for example some kind of junior partner of China. There are in some circles we we have such views, but this is a minority view. Yes, thank you very much. Um, So you've been
1: you have been already uh, talking about some like positive uh, sides of the Russian Chinese relations, but uh, let me exacerbate a bit. Of course, in any bilateral relations, and especially when we talk about such huge and powerful countries as China and Russia. Um, there are some weak spots there are some thorny issues that should be somehow neglected because otherwise it could put at risk the whole system of linkages so uh could you expand a bit on what fundamental consensuses russian chinese relations are based upon and maybe what specific problems do states intentionally ignore in order to have a stable partnership with each other
2: i don't think uh Russia and China have any problems in their bilateral relations um, and they don't ignore any problems. Of course uh, we can talk about some weaknesses but it's not uh, uh, I would say they are caused by natural causes it's not uh, somebody's uh, you know fault play or something like that. For example Russia is always Usually concerned that it mostly sends uh, oil and gas to China, natural resources, uh, and China is selling to Russia more and more machinery. But it's of course natural because uh, Russian Russia's economy does not produce much much machinery, which may be interest, interest interesting to China, and also. Um, uh, also, the price on oil and gas is uh, growing, so that's why the I would say it's still the it's the largest share of Russia's export. Uh, uh, so this is like economic problem. We used to have some problem with customs, but now they are basically solved. Uh, in the international sphere, I cannot even see. Any kind of problem uh, between the two countries, the cooperation and mutual understanding is of a very high level. Uh, the foreign ministers uh, each department of foreign ministry has consultations with, with uh, their partners in China uh, so uh, i mean if you, if you can mention any problem to me i would I would be happy to learn.
1: Well, I think your expertise is much more sophisticated than mine, so uh, I'll give the floor to my colleague.
0: So, um, I'm pretty sure it's fair to say that Russia's and Chinese foreign policies are very leader centric. So, how major is the role of President Putin or uh, Chairman uh, Xi in the development of
2: the Russia Chinese relations now? I don't frankly believe in the role of uh, personality in foreign policy. Well, perhaps the internally, the home policies of both countries are leader centric. But, you know, as I said, uh, the rapprochement began uh, under Gorbachev. Several leaders changed in Russia and in China, uh, the uh, Russia, or the Soviet Union collapsed, so the entire system of government in Russia changed, uh, and uh, every new leader continued the previous trend. So, which means that it's uh, rather objective and does not depend on personality. And uh, when we talk, when journalists talk about good personal relations between Leaders, I think this is, uh, I mean, leaders are led by interests, not by personal preference. Uh, So we can see from history, you know, Stalin was a good friend of uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, then he became an enemy of Chiang Kai-shek, then he again began uh, be. Uh, became a good friend of Chiang Kai-shek. Then he again became be, became an enemy and a friend of Mao Zedong. So it all changes uh, when interests change. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't say that uh, uh, in this case, especially uh, leaders are very important. We all know that the expression
1: "the big game" is related to Russian-British confrontation in Central Asia. And uh, as the last question, we'd like to put some geopolitical aspect. So could China's growing influence in their uh, region uh, led to a confrontation between the two countries?
2: Well, I, I think that the problems between Russia and China in Central Asia are uh, mostly exaggerated because uh, Russian and China's interest in this area coincide. Politically and economically, uh, I would say both Russia and China want to work together here to uh, support political stability. Uh, For example, we saw January last year when uh, Russia uh, with its uh, Uh, with with support of some other countries, uh, restored the political stability in Kazakhstan. China basically supported that. Um, And uh, because, of course, uh, China did not want any kind of political disturbances in Kazakhstan, uh, like in any other countries, they both... uh, uh, they both support uh, secularism and secular governments there because uh, for both russia and china um, if uh, some radical say muslim forces uh, radical islamists uh, come to power in one of the countries uh, it would be a threat to security of both of them uh, the they both uh, work for Economic development and this uh, in uh, Central Asia, uh, because uh, economic development will be a, a good uh, basis for political stability. Uh, well, of course, uh, sometimes there are some kind of competition between companies of. Uh, Those two countries, but this has nothing to do with political relations between the two countries, which are very strong. Uh, One should not exaggerate these things. You know, people, especially journalists, uh, talk about economic wars quite a lot. Like there was a, I remember, potato war between the United States and Canada, and some banana wars between uh, Britain and. uh, Uh, say, some other European countries over the uh, trade, banana trade with Africa. But these are not real wars. These are competition, and uh, if the relations are strong, nobody is talking that Uh, nobody is saying that because of some uh, minor economic problem, relations between the United States and Canada could seriously become worse. So. uh of course uh uh we understand that uh, china's growth uh, economic influence is growing and that's a natural thing and uh even if uh, russia wanted to do something about it 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 could not do anything about it because china's uh uh gdp And the size of Chinese economy is more than 10 times larger than that of Russia. And the gap is growing. So, of course, one should only expect that uh, China's um, economic influence in this region uh, will will grow. Uh, But uh, the problem is not the growth of China's economic interests, Uh, in this area, but if this economic interest uh, could undermine some kind of Russia's interest. But this is not what's going on. As I said, our interests completely coincide. Any kind of uh, disputes can be settled very easily by the two governments. Uh, So I don't see any problem in Central Asia with China. Professor Alexander Lukin, thank you very much for this interview. Thank you.
0: You can listen to the Understanding Russia podcast. Today's episode was produced by Fedor Alexeyev. it was mixed and mastered by Stefka Kostoykova and Slavko Sergeyevich, our research assistant and fact-checker was Diana Bersanova, and the hosts of this episode were Oleg Rostamov and Stefan Stjanov. The episode would not have been possible without the help of the International Laboratory on Curatorial Studies and the New Regionalism. We remind you that all opinions you've heard belong to those who said them. Thank you all for listening,
2: see you next time and stay safe.